Спасибо вам за то, что вы молитесь на множестве разных языков с такой радостью и верой. Ваши молитвы помогают мне увидеть Бога гораздо шире. Thank you. The rest of you, mind your own business. <laughs> no, it's great to have a church that is praising Jesus in many tongues. And what I just said there is, your prayers help me see God in a much bigger way. So thank you, all of you who prayed out in different languages and different styles. We worship one God, but boy, does he look so different in so many ways that he expresses himself to us. So thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. If you're a visitor here today, um, welcome. Brilliant to have you. If you have any questions, please speak to us afterwards in the back there when we go for tea and coffee. If you don't have any questions, come there anywhere and have a coffee with us. We'd love to uh, speak to you. We are in a series looking at the life of Jesus, according to one of Jesus' close eyewitnesses, Matthew, aren't we? Come the revolution, uh, we've called this sermon series. We've had lots of breaks, I know. Phil Moore writes about the, uh, his, in his short commentary about this amazing gospel book. It says, Jesus of Nazareth sparked a revolution. That's why we've called it Come the Revolution. A lot of people miss that fact. They are so used to the long-haired, blue-eyed, white-robed storybook Jesus that they imagine he was about as tame and domesticated as many of his churches today. But he wasn't. Jesus was a radical, dangerous revolutionary who made big waves and powerful enemies. He was not killed for preaching pithy parables, but because he claimed to be king. That is the setting of Matthew's gospel. So where are we in the story so far? We've had a lot of breaks, as I said. Jesus is coming to his final days before the cross. That's what's happening now, Matthew 25. And he is choosing this time, we see, to be intense and upfront with his disciples. In many ways, he's describing what Christianity in the church will look like. He's warning us. Peter will deny Jesus three times, even when he said he would never do that. The other disciples will flee when the going gets tough. Judas is about to shock them all in his betrayal of Jesus. Who's in and who's out becomes less clear. Outward performance and all, the, all of our doing is not necessarily a picture of what's going on inside. Someone wrote, Christ is separating true believers from play-acting phonies. This is an intense section of Matthew 25. And so, in this, so this is the context of this next Jesus parable. It's three parables together. This is the middle one. Um, and so this is how it reads, Matthew 25, verse 14. The kingdom of God, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and the other one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. 
The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. The man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted with me with five bags. See, I have gained five more. Well done. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness or joy. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted with me with less than five bags, two bags. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid of you and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See here what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least had some interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is challenging, that we don't skip bits of your word because they are tough, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. This is the context of all that you're doing in Matthew's gospel. You gave your life for us. That is the context of all that you are speaking into our lives. And we pray by the Spirit of God that we will receive your truth with faith, faith and joy and an understanding that results in changed lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to explore this parable in the context of stewardship. You can talk about this parable in lots of different ways, but I want to, I want to explore it in the context of stewardship and particularly of money and finances, our financial provision. We don't talk, of that, we don't talk enough about that in church, really, but this morning, I'd really like to unpack that for you. After such a generous gift day where we raised, oh, nearly, which you'll hear about tonight, the reason why we're doing it tonight is not to be cruel and not to get you to the prayer meeting. That is not the reason. We want to pray and spend some time thanking God for what we've been given. So come to the prayer meeting because that's part and parcel of your giving, a 
and your worship. So anyhow, um, in the midst of uncertainty, I have been so grateful for the years of teaching on generous faithful giving and the godly handle, handling of provisions that I have received in this church. And year in, year out, you know, you'll see tonight when we, when we unveil the figure, year in, year out, you put that teaching into practice. It's in our DNA, Jubilee, even though many of you don't have a lot. Your faith in God's faithfulness always comes through. So a big thank you to you all. That's where I want to start. So what does Jesus say about how we handle finances and provisions? Let's have a look. First point, important point, your money is not your money. You're not the owner. See verse 4, the kingdom of God, it will be like a man on a, going on a journey who called his servants and that man entrusted his wealth to them. That's what, that's what we call stewardship. A steward is someone who manages, looks after, uses wisely the assets, the possessions of someone else. And because it's not theirs, but somebody else's, they have to be careful and thoughtful and prayerful about what they do with it. One of our children's most commonly used words when they were around two years old was, mine, mine. Have you noticed that? That's mine, Daddy. Get off that, Jemima. It's mine, my seat, my Buzz Lightyear, my McDonald's, my side of the car, mine. Hilarious, really, um, when a two-year-old says that because all of that stuff is mine. <laughs> but these immature two-year-olds couldn't get their head around this simple fact. Not like us grown-ups, of course. Question, who do you think all your wealth belongs to? And by your wealth, I mean your job, your benefits, your income, your retirement account, your student loan, your savings, your assets, your possessions, your home, your investments, your car, your phone, all those things, all of those things. Who do you think owns and gives you all that stuff? You or God? Do you naturally think mine or his? And would that be evident? Would that be crystal clear when someone looked at maybe your budget or your giving or your spending? This is challenging for me. That's what stewardship is calling us to reflect on. Jesus spoke probably 25% of his gospels on finances and possessions. It's important. Psalm 50.10 says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and a cattle on a thousand hills. All the steak is mine. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All the credit cards, all the debit cards, all mine. And what's interesting in this parable is that all of us are given something. And God is calling all of us, all of us, to exercise faith in all that he gifts us with, big or small. Another way of thinking about it is that he doesn't want to leave anybody out. Stewardship is an issue of ownership. It's an issue of being living sacrifices like we talked about on Tuesday. It's an issue of worship jubilee. So point one, 
Who do you think owns your wealth? God does. And how you use what he gives you shows what you feel about him, what I feel about him. It's a heart thing for Jesus. That's why it's so important. Secondly, money and possessions are a great blessing from God. Whether you have five bags or two bags of gold, or maybe half a bag. Through how you handle your finances, you have the ability, Jubilee, to showcase Christ to the world. Be deeply generous with what you, with what you have. Share it um, with those in need. Show your church, show your friends or colleagues or families. Show those in the world who you bump into, those in poverty, the seemingly undeserving, the rock bottoms, everyone, that God is a generous God who abundantly provides for those in need. Because God has left, because God has left the building, hasn't he? Through the sharing and godly stewarding of God's provision, we bring joy news to Jesus, the joy news of Jesus to everyone everywhere. Now, we don't often talk about this on Sunday. I, I think we need to talk about it more. We tend to talk about it more in our intro course for new people in church. But for many of you, you might be asking, how does that apply to us in the church in terms of giving? Does the Bible actually say anything about that? Or do we just guess? Yeah, it depends on our feelings. Is it tithing, giving a tenth of everything? Um, what's the formula, God? Can I just tap it into my calculator and out comes a number and I feel relieved? Some of you from different nations or different church backgrounds may have differing ideas about this. When it, so, what, so what do we do in those situations? We go to the Bible, don't we? Probably the most informative passage on giving to the church in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here in these two, uh, two passages, we see the principles of faith-filled, living sacrifice, generous giving in action. So what's the background, though, to what the Apostle Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Well, there's a church in a region called Macedonia, and they were under, it says, extreme poverty. That is the context of Paul's great teaching on giving. Not plenty, but little. And it says this, hear this, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Wow. Some of the most generous people I know often don't have a lot. That has been my experience over the years. And so Paul gives the church, I think, four areas of direction, pieces of direction, which I think we could do with just recapping quickly this morning. Firstly, we give out of an understanding of grace. Our giving is not motivated by obligation, but by His unconditional giving and generosity towards us. It's overwhelming. It's contagious. It becomes a privilege jubilee. We cannot outgive God. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Grace-filled giving. Secondly, we give purposefully. You see, we can drift outside, I certainly can drift in my giving, depending on my feelings, depending on what day it is. God wants us to pray about it. He wants us to seek him purposefully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Church giving is a together heart adventure. It encompasses our whole being. That's why we had three weeks on vision, didn't we? It's not about what you want the church to do, but about what God has called the church, you and me, to do together, to be together in Ghana, in um, Turkey, through Alpha, uh, the Hope Foundation, through Open Door Northeast, through our Christ Central Bigger Family, through our community groups, through welcoming diversity and remembering the poor, through purchasing this building as a hub for multiplying the church in the years ahead so that we bring more and more of the joy news of Jesus to everyone. This is our journey together with the Master, isn't it? Thirdly, we give cheerfully and sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 reads, For God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, that Greek word translated cheerful there, hilarion, is actually more like the word hilarious. Yeah? The Bible links generous giving with joy that comes, wells up from the heart. C.J. Mahaney says this, What does hilarious giving look like? It looks, it is just short of delirious. But cheerful giving also goes hand in hand with sacrificial giving. It costs us. We should feel it. Sacrificial giving means making radical lifestyle adjustments to the point of not having what, other, what maybe some of your other peers have. For some of you, that might be giving away 10%. For some of you, that might be 50%. Who knows? That's between you and Jesus. It really is. Jonathan, Ed, right, Jonathan Edwards writes in a slightly older form of English. You've got to concentrate a bit. He says this. Remember Galatians 6.2 when it says, Bear one another's burdens. We may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. Else, how is it the rule? Bear one another's burdens fulfilled. If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, except when we do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear your neighbor's burdens when you do it only by bearing no burden at all? Think about that. Do you see what he's saying? It's terribly challenging. He's saying when you and I say, I can't afford to give, what we mean is we can't afford to give to the poor or the needy or the church without it burdening me, without it hurting my living standards, without it making me radically sacrifice. And Jesus says, yes, that's exactly it. There's no such thing as a person who can afford to help. In fact, 
if you can afford to help, Jesus says you're not helping enough. Gosh, the Bible is radical. I need to read it more slowly and let it sink in and change me. Fourthly, we also give proportionately, regularly, and generously. I've deliberately bunched those together as well. God calls us to a sensible, systematic, planned out, generous way of giving. That might mean monthly or weekly to you. Um, many of you give by standing order and plan that into your regularly giving. Thank you. That really helps us steward God's finances as a whole. If you want to consider that, there are forms in the back room to help you with that. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Practical, very practical. Tithing in the Old Testament is a minimum for most of us. That's how I'd read it. In, um, in, in the New Testament, Jesus actually, when we move on from tithing in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament never lowered the bar. He always raised it because that's what grace does. That's what God, the Holy Spirit, does inside of us. If you're not regularly giving to the work of the church, can I ask you to consider it? If that feels challenging to you, then maybe start by just giving a little, but regularly. It's not actually because God needs your money, but he does want your heart. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart will follow. Those of you who have more, I encourage you in this season of difficulty to prayerfully consider giving more. Whoever you are, give Jesus a go. Trust him. Point one, your money isn't your money, it's God's. How you steward it declares your heart for him. Point two, money is a great blessing. Giving to the church is very much part of our kingdom, grace-filled, sacrificial responsibility. Jesus wants you to be purposeful, prayerful, generous, and joyful about it. Finally, the difficult bit. Thirdly, this passage is a warning. Money, for many of us, is not, and possibly most of us, can be a, a trap, a great trap also. See verse 24, Then the man who had received one bag of gold said, Master, I knew you that were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold somewhere. This is an issue of distorted worship. The servant describes the master as a hard man, a demanding, overbearing man. Actually, the reality of this master is quite the opposite. He's a giver, isn't he? He gives according to our ability, it says. In other words, he knows us. He understands us. He will not burden us more than he knows we can endure. He has our best interests at heart, even when it doesn't feel like it. Did you notice verse 19? After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with him. He is patient. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
What does he say to the other two servants? Well done, good and faithful servants. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in my joy. That's the God we worship, the greatest giver. But as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I don't know what your ears or eyes focused on most when you were all reading this passage. If I'm honest, when I read it, I was staring at the bags of gold, not the master. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Only when you see God's love as more valuable and satisfying and beautiful than your love for money, then you will never be freaked out by having not enough of it. Only when you realize that God's provision is faithful and reliable will you not be rocked by the financial ups and downs of this world ahead. In Luke 12, I love this. Jesus says, in the midst of anxiety and worry, he says, what do we do? Consider the lilies. Think about flowers. Think about them. Stare at them. Smell them. Get their pollen on your shirt if needed. Now, what do you notice? They don't do much, do they? They just sit there, unstressed and unhurried, without toiling or spinning. Their beauty is incomparable, but it's not earned. It's just given. They don't even last very long, not mine anyway. Eventually, you chuck them out and replace them with another bunch. Yet no human in history, Jesus says, has been clothed like this. If God dresses them like that as temporary and disposable as they are, then he'll dress you too. So why are you anxious? Do you see that? Do you see how Jesus wants to bring a different dimension to all that we watch on our TVs? It's not that he's not bothered, but he wants to give you faith to see bigger and better in him. By the way, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you could replace your unstable, never-satisfying love of money or whatever else it is that you put your hopes and desires in above and before God. Today, you can put that trust in Jesus, the one who always loves you no matter what, the one who always satisfies you, the one who always forgives you when you fail him, the one who went out of his way to get you and welcome you back home. See verse 30? And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I wish we could end at verse 29, but we can't. We really don't like that bit, do we? In fact, rather than the bags of gold, that's probably what you're all thinking about most. And it's deliberate. Jesus is trying to disturb you because he loves you. This is a warning. One of Jesus' listeners, Judas Iscariot, wasn't really choosing Jesus. He was choosing 30 pieces of silver. Judas would eventually betray Jesus for money and show his true choice. His life didn't end well. Jesus is telling us, warning us, that life without God doesn't end well. 
Hell is a place of total cut-off and separation from God, a place of absolute isolation from the favor and the face of God, where the sustaining, life-giving light, which we see all around us, whether you believe him or not, stops, will be no more. Hell is God's final answer to all of our leave-me-alone God that we say throughout our lives. But he's giving us a long time to see his beauty, his glory, his love. He is giving us a long time to change. If you're not a Christian here this morning, who or what are you choosing? Life with him or life without him? Because if you say, leave me alone, God, ultimately, he'll let you have what you want. Ultimately, he'll say, okay. But Jesus also offers you a way out, and it cost him his very life. On the cross, Jesus experienced total God-forsakenness, total abandonment, all the just and righteous punishment of all our dishonoring, disobeying, and disregarding of God. On the cross, he chooses to drink the cup of eternal darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, so that he can offer you a different cup to drink, the cup of salvation, freedom, joy, purpose, intimacy with him. That's the deal. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to hell, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal, joyful life with Jesus. Friends, he loves you. He really loves you. How much, you might be thinking. Hell much. Hell much. That's how much he loves you. If you want to consider the Christian faith, to put your life in Jesus' hands, to live life to the full, I'd encourage you to have a chat with me or have a chat with the person who brought you. By trusting in Jesus, you will, you will, ne- you will be rich like you've never imagined richness before. That is an experience of mine, and that is an experience of many here this morning. The band can come up and I'll pray for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these difficult words. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you call us to a life of generous, sacrificial, pouring out, taking up our crosses, giving our everything to you who gave us so much more. And I pray, Lord God, that we are serious as Jesus is calling us to be. I pray, Lord God, that we are slightly disturbed by what he's calling us. I pray, Lord God, that you will fill us with your spirit. And for those of us who know we are that we love Jesus, that we have given our life to Jesus. You have called us into everlasting joy. And I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And we all praise you for that. For those who may not have taken that commitment just yet, I pray, Lord God, that you will touch their hearts this morning and show them how much beauty and glory. I pray, Lord, that you'll fling open the doors of your grace and kindness 
and welcome those who are lost to be found in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand and let's worship.